Welcome to TV with Friends. My name is Chelsea, and I am joined by my best friend in the entire world. He's on the phone with me from Los Angeles. Hi, Evan. Hi, Chelsea. Yay. We are together again, and this is our first deep dive, and we are going to be covering the first season of True Detective. Yay. Yes. It's one of our favorite shows, and we're going to start off right at the top with our first impressions of the show and how the show came to be. So I'm going to give us a little bit of just right at the top information. So True Detective, its original air date was January 2014. It is creative and executive produced by Nick Pizzolatto, mostly directed by Kari Fukunaga, filmed in New Orleans over 100 days, and also Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey have executive producing credits for their creative involvement in the show. And they are also our two main stars. So now we've got a little information on it. Evan, where were you when you first watched True Detective and what were your first impressions of this show? We were at, we were living at one of our second to last houses, I believe. Mm -hmm. And came across, you know, random preview uh, for this new show and just seeing Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey involved, uh, I was pretty much on board from yes. the very beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the soundtrack, even in the trailers, matched my um, expectations when it came to even the show when the first episode aired. I mean, the theme song is incredible. Um, first impressions were absolutely amazing. I mean, the cinematography, the way that it was filmed, mm -hmm. the just the atmosphere of Louisiana. Yeah. And getting to experience eight episodes, eight hours of living in this atmosphere and watching this detective story kind of play out mm -hmm. throughout the South was so intriguing because just Louisiana on its own, you know, New Orleans, it's such a beautiful city, like steeped in mythology and history. It was so intriguing to, to kind of kind of just jump into this. That's our second was, TV show set in Louisiana that we liked besides True Blood. Yeah, yeah, True Blood. I mean, True Blood, I don't know which one of these two would take the higher step, possibly True Blood, because of it being filmed in our hometown and we got to like sit there and watch it for a little bit. Yeah, it was and mostly filmed, filmed in Los Angeles. Here. And on yeah, yeah. It was here, it was there. And but no, True Detective, fantastic. It, it was just so exciting to watch. And like I said, Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey William Her or uh, Woody Harrelson. Who could so want more? Who yeah, you couldn't really ask for more. That's kind of what I was thinking too, because those, I, first of all, I'm a huge McConaughey fan. I have been since I was a teenager and he has just, except for when he started doing like romantic comedies, then I was like, no, but to see him return to drama and like you said, like watching, like in the previews and stuff, we were probably watching Game of Thrones or whatever on HBO and to oh, see definitely. these two characters together and then see them aged and looking differently um, because of the dueling timelines that we have in this show, that was amazing for me. And 
I think just around this time in 2014 was really the start of when like the golden age of television. There were a lot of shows that were just like Breaking Bad was taking over. Mad Men was kind of in its end of the season, kind of coming up on the end of the season. We had just finished yeah. Lost, I believe, or Lost had just wrapped up. So it there, was maybe like a year or two before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. yeah. So everything that was going on with TV was just it was very palpable and just like oh my god, every time you turned around, a new fucking amazing show was landing in your lap, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't technically I wouldn't technically call it like the golden age of TV because the golden age of TV is always going to be considered like like what the early late fifties early sixties with Lucy and Desi maybe and the revival those, I would call it I would call it the golden age of storytelling yeah on TV yeah because that this is when like TV really overtook movies mm-hmm. movies were getting worse and worse and worse TV was getting better and better and better and we our our launch pad was lost. Yes. That was kind of one of our most, well, is one of our most beloved story-told, story-driven TV shows. Mm-hmm. Nothing procedural about, procedural about it. And it's the same when it comes to True Detective. And it was just, we got a golden fucking story. Yeah. We got a great story with a great end, which we're going to talk about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But so good. So, so good. Yes. I have, have now... What was funny is that I think I have probably, this was probably my fifth or sixth time rewatching True Detective for the notes and stuff. And then I have also been going through just kind of randomly through season two and three, just choosing different episodes. Obviously, season one is the the best of the three. And let's talk a little bit. One of the first things as we open this up, let's talk about the structure of the show, because when you rewatched it, we found out that you, it had been a I while seen, since you had I seen it. I seen the whole thing. Yeah, front to back. I, I thought I had seen the whole show. I was like so on board with doing, with doing this episode. And then I watched all of the episodes and I was like, holy crap, I think I left off on episode four. So I didn't even get a chance to finish it. So this was my first watch. So this is going to be a very fresh discussion mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. having it being my first episode or first run through yeah and just the amount of conversation that we've had together and informed my opinion on it and your all of the study that you've done is going to help me but it's like wow this is the first time i've ever thoroughly watched this show yeah and it was great absolutely great that's how i felt watching the third season again because i was just like wow, I think I've only maybe seen it maybe once or twice. And you just put, a, I just put a lot of time and other TV shows in that way, in the way of it. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't remember much. <laughs> so yeah. it's good that we're all fresh. So one of the things that we first disagreed on, on the show was kind of the structure because you were having a hard time getting through the first half and I kind of feel like the last half is not, we're not saying they're bad or good. We're just saying like, we weren't as into it as we were at the, the other parts of the show. So I am, my favorite episodes are one through four, five is great, but I, I really love one through four. Like that's when I, I feel like I'm the most like really into the, 
just like into the atmosphere, like you were saying of the show. And I'm kind of taking that all in. And I think the reason that I chose the first half um, is because I'm more of a character driven viewer. Um, The plot can unravel itself at any point, but as long as I'm seeing characters that are structured, that are being acted in a certain way, the way that Matthew McConaughey was being interviewed was very hypnotic. His life is very interesting. So I was really just trying to get every little bit and piece of what his character was giving me and then kind of move forward with the crime procedural part and then the wrap up of how is this murder going to get solved? Yeah. Well, and on my end, you know, me and I need a hook. Mm -hmm. I need a hook. And that was where I had such a hard time getting into the first couple episodes. Your, your last favorite episode, episode four, mentioning episode five, which is also a great episode, but from episode four on, I like the latter half of the season because there's more information coming out and and at a faster pace. Mm -hmm. And I'm the type of TV viewer that I need, if I'm going to get into something, and this is, you and I have talked about this so many times, this is why I couldn't get into Mad Men. There was just like no hook. Yeah. The plot hadn't arrived yet. Like the first episode of Lost, I was in 100%. What is the thing shaking the trees in the jungle? What is going on? Mm-hmm. What is what is happening with the numbers? Yada, yada, yada. And then getting like, to know the characters later. Yes. Yeah. I don't need character development right off the bat. And truly, like, when it comes to any TV series, it's different when it comes to these standalone, one single season... Um, anthologies. You know, anthology series. You... In a traditional TV series, you're going to take your first episode, first season to introduce your characters. You're not going to flush them out like crazy. And then your second season is where you actually get to dive into your characters. Yeah. So removing those ideas while watching an anthology series is was a bit of a hard jump for me, but the rewatch made it a lot easier. Yeah. to get into all of these characters and get into their little avenues. Rust being a, a crazy person in certain manners and mm-hmm. Marty being a womanizer and yada, yada, yada. Like, you have to, like, you have to invest in these characters right off the bat. And I think that was, that was one of the biggest hurdles for me. I, it was, uh, so I think that's where I, I ended up not finishing the season or the series. Yeah. Even... So I thought I did. I think the, until I rewatched it. The last part for me was also it, I think maybe where I bumped up against it was the the crime itself and going back with the second timeline. These characters after spending 10 years apart then coming back together, putting all the pieces of the puzzle back together and kind of rehashing like something because of that timeline, there was a lot of rehashing done where I was just like, is this information we already knew? You know, like, am I going to get something out of these characters? Like I was thinking that since they gave us so much in the beginning, that maybe there was more for these characters to develop within episodes seven to, or sorry, uh, five to eight. But really what it is was we already know these guys. We've showed you enough. We already know these guys. So from, the second, uh, from the penultimate, you know, we were kind of like, okay, this is just about catching 
this guy. And this is just yeah. about doing these victims justice. And that's kind of where in the rewatch, it was much easier for me to kind of go through it because I was like, we already know who Marty and Rust are. Just settle in and watch these two detectives solve Ed the crime. Yeah. And they do have a little bit of an epiphany at the end and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I think this, the structure of the show is very interesting because it, you know, it could lose you. It could not hook you in like, you know, like with other shows, like you were saying at the beginning when it's all just like, look at this character, study this character, then we will move him. Then you will see what happens and in the plot and everything. I think, yeah, that is where you and I differ, but I think it's also kind of goes hand in hand with the dueling timelines in the show, which are a little, did you, were you ever at all confused with the timelines? No, not really, because they they very clearly delineate where you're where you're you're standing in the story. Because mm-hmm. it's it's very obvious when we're looking at the beginning of the investigation as opposed to the reopening of the investigation and the reexamination yes. of it. Yes. Um, you know, if they had if they had done something along the lines of. Um, I believe Euphoria did this in the first episode, and uh, Birds of Prey is another is a movie example. They start from a certain point in the movie, and then they're just like, "Okay, let me backtrack and show you how we got here." So okay. If they, had, if they had hit a point where we maybe opened up the first episode with Rust, uh, spoiler alert. I'm sure there's going to be many no, spoilers yeah. as well. <laughs> Go for um, it. If they had opened up with like Russ and Marty walking into Russ' storage unit, mm-hmm. and them kind of opening up the discuss the discussion of reexamining this case, that would have been a hook for me in the first episode because I gotcha. know we're going to get somewhere. So even if we're going to go through two episodes of just kind of like uh, interviews and slow build and seeing how they backstory progresses yeah that would have given me enough to say okay next episode i'm sitting down pay attention and the thing is i did sit down and pay attention to episodes one through three and got through four and must have fallen off and i it had to have been because of the pacing Mm -hmm. and i also think one of the maybe one of the things that upon rewatch and this is why rewatching is so important is because you'll think, Oh, I've seen that show. I know that show. And then you'll see something that you haven't watched in five years. Maybe it's because I'm a stoner or I don't, I don't know. I have ADD or whatever, but I'll come back to something and be like, how did I not catch that? Did I catch that? I'm getting old. Um, but one of the things that I, that did slip by me the past few times I've watched it, or maybe I didn't care or fixate on it is, um, the fact that he, Matthew McConaughey's character at rest knows exactly why he is being interviewed in the 2012 interviews. And it's because he's, you know, he's kind of wrestled up the case or gotten the case back. And now he's like ruffling the feathers of the police department. Cause he keeps showing up at the crime scenes and yeah. he's trying to investigate it on his own as an ex cop. So that was something that I was not paying t- attention to at first that I did that I thought was like kind of a cool, like aha moment when you realize that even 10 years later, they are still so good at 
telling the story of what happened to get them to the point where all their cover-ups, all like the lies and the going outside of their job to get this solved. I, that was something cool that I didn't see before the first time where I was like, oh, they really did just play those guys. Like you think they're being interviewed. You think they're in trouble. Marty's wife is being interviewed. You're like, oh, this must be really serious. But they were all kind of playing each other at the same time. It just kind of shows how smart these characters are. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, moving on from structure, we're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we are going to talk a little bit more in depth about the tone, the setting, and the cinematography choices that they made. So we will be right back. All right. Welcome back. So let's talk a little bit about the tone and the setting and all the cool ways that they filmed the show, because I think there are so many visual aspects to this show that just really enhance the story so much. And this is, it's just why this show is so amazing. So one of the first things, and I'm really excited that you're here to talk with me about this on this one, because you know, uh, or you're very fascinated by this, but the, there's a, the ending of episode four is basically an undercover mission that Rust has to um, do. And he's going undercover like he had before in his career with a motorcycle gang. And they want him to do an armed robbery job for a gang that sells drugs. And they're going to go take this. They're going to go take this gang member that they have hostage, take him back to the stash house and, take it basically. I don't know why motorcycle gangs do what they do, but that is what they were doing. <laughs> They're stealing drugs. <laughs> so it, 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 escapes, it escapes both of us. We yeah. both don't know how. So <laughs> neither, none of us, not a clue. I look like I should no. know, but I don't. Um, <laughs> so I think outside of other TV shows, like let's talk about the continuous shot. So there's a continuous shot at the end of this episode the only other continuous shot series I can really think of are ER, where they start at the ambulance bay and then they work their way into the emergency room and start working on the patient once they get them in the room. And then even at that point, the camera's still going around and around. So basically, I think how many minutes did it come out to the scene? Four or five? No, no it was like eight, eight and a half, maybe oh. seven it's so seven minutes forty five seconds. It's so entertaining. It, it feels so fast. It's yeah, it feels so fast. I expected it to be longer. You know, on on my rewatch, I was waiting for at least the last fifteen minutes to contain this continuous shot. Mm -hmm. But no, they condensed they condensed it down, and it was still just as intense as it would have been with fifteen minutes, as opposed to eight and a half. What do you think that? continuous shots like what do they add to shows and movies like why do you think they're so effective because it brings it pulls you in you're involved yeah in that shot like you are in the moment mm. and you know with this shot and i i watched it uh, i watched this shot specifically like maybe four or five times i didn't like you know we all know that i only watched the show once at this point but this specific scene i've watched four or five times and it was 
so good and you can you can know exactly where and I was trying to watch it and I was like oh this is the beginning of it nope it wasn't <laughs> and I, it went to another shot and then it was I was like nope it's not the beginning of it and it's when Rust is at right at the front door Ginger they're they're with Ginger well with Ginger yeah and they go into the house this is the beginning of the continuous shot and you know, you can tell that it was very carefully choreographed mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing because the the most notable continuous shot thing that we've talked about is 1917. Yeah. And that's a movie, so it's the whole thing. But this is tight quarters, and you and I were talking about, like, how could they have done this? And if you take a step back and you look at it, you can tell that it was very carefully choreographed through going through those tight quarters, through the, the hallway of a house, from yeah. room to room, following There's people run. in every room of the house. Like, there's ten people in one of the, like, the living rooms of this small in house. The room. Yeah. In the living room, yeah. Because he goes from room to room. The only other person that he finds in any of the other rooms is the kid that he walks into the bathroom and tells him to lay down in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. And, but you can tell that, like, you know, the camera was staged perfect or cameraman was staged perfectly enough where McConaughey could poke into a room and turn around real quick and head into the next room. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I wish I could, I wish you could see the, I like the way making, but I, when we were talking about 1917, I, I think I'm glad you said that it is like to really put yourself in that shot. Because when I was watching that movie, I was so claustrophobic and I was just like, ah, pull out of the shit, pull the shot out a little bit. Like I was, I, it got me a little uncomfortable and it, you're right. It, it does create a certain amount of tension where you feel like you're so close to what is happening. And then be, I think giving, um, rust the, uh, he basically has a, a hostage or he has ginger. He has to take ginger because either he'll, ginger will get killed or he'll go narc on him to the, to the gang that he's undercover. So he has ginger in a headlock. So he's hugging the walls with his back and using ginger to like turn himself and like pivot himself around. And then the camera is swinging around with you and it makes those close quarters, even though it's really compact, there's so much movement happening within those shots your eyes don't know where to go you're supposed to feel claustrophobic because they're they're pulling you into the story yeah they want you to feel claustrophobic they want you to feel like this is really tight this is really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but that's just imagine what that's the tone of the scene are feeling that is what's important to the scene exactly exactly so they want you to feel that, and that's one of the best things about one of, of those continuous shot mm-hmm. scenes is just, like, you're you're in it. It's like you're walking. It's like you're the cameraman. Yeah. You are going through the whole scene with everybody, going through dodging the gun the gunshots, dodging the fucking uh, spotlight of the helicopter that's overhead. Mm-hmm. Like, you are... Climbing that fence. <laughs> with what? When they're climbing the fence, that's like when I really, I was like, yeah. oh, they've been running for so much. And now they have to like, he has to get him to climb the fence. And then they're basically just like fall over it. It made me want to invest in surround sound because I, I was probably, well, I, the couch is pretty close to the TV in my little apartment, but the sounds of when they get outside is my favorite. And it reminds, it's almost like a video game 
setup. It reminded me of like Manhunt or just like a video game where you have a hostage with you. And to hear the bullets whizzing by down the block, to hear dogs barking from other like houses, like scattered voice, like the way that um, people will walk by you in video games and it's just like a, a little voice and it sounds like off in the distance. That stuff is so, it just adds so much. And this is just one of those scenes that in TV where you're just like, oh my, oh my God. Like the first time I saw it was probably, I think I was probably standing up or sitting at the end of the bed, just being like, oh, what the fuck? And then it just comes together. I think the handoff at the end when he calls Marty and Mark, cause Marty is not in this scene until the very end and yeah. just like swoops up, picks him up. And then you pull the shot out. And also that lingering shot of the helicopter camera and just seeing what they set off in that neighborhood. Yeah, what they started. Yeah, it is. It's very. It was. It just was very, very exciting. And I think it really because the following episode is when they go to confront. Um, they find the compound where they think that the Yellow King is, and going from there to there, it's like you still had that adrenaline going. And you still had that like uneasy feeling going into the next episode, which is they're in just as much danger as they were in that setting. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Ugh. It's a different scale of, of danger because it's, you know, you change it from a gangland mentality to like a fucking meth head cooking meth mentality. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, I, I'm not very familiar with meth heads other than Breaking Bad and whatnot, but I, mean, I am from living in Portland. <laughs> they're everywhere. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I mean, not perfect. I'm so glad you don't do that. Yeah. But um, it's just, it's a different type of, of violence too. At the same time, like it's how so nonsensical, nonsensical violence when it mm-hmm. comes to like the gang mentality. Mm-hmm. It's just like that's their lifestyle. It's it's it is violence. It's been violence from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. But then. Meth heads, they just, you know, do their meth, and then they get crazy, and then they just... Get these ideas. Mayhem. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to, you know, the, I'm just going to fucking kill everybody because I can type thing. Yeah. Well, we'll get in... We're going to do our character study after... A little bit towards the end of the episode, I think. But I think this is also a great... Um, this scene, I think, is also why it's so powerful, is because... Rust as a detective, he says he needs to take some time off and he takes like a leave of absence to go undercover and to get this done and get everything that they need so that this is pulled off correctly. And I think what it's kind of like a, there's no turning back for him after a point. And it's, it's just such a big character choice. And speaking of meth, I, whatever he takes, I think he's taking meth or angel dust or we don't know we're not, we don't do white drugs, so we don't know, but, um, not, not anymore, but, um, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But when he takes the hit off of whatever ginger gives him that I love actors who can play drunk or who can play on drugs because that first hit his eyes just like light up and he's like looking around (laughs) and it's just, it's incredibly convincing. And then watching them, in the stash house before that extended scene when they're just passing around drugs and trying out their guns. It's it, it like those, it is like those parts of breaking bad where you just, 
it makes your skin crawl and it makes you so uncomfortable because it's like you basically meth heads are just, it's psychosis. It's just craziness. And Oh my God. It, so it was incredibly effective to put us there. Anything else you want to talk about with the extended scene before we move on? Um, we were talking about the possibility of a cut. Yeah. And I didn't find many. I found a possible cut. Mm -hmm. Um, the only place that I could have seen it being cut would have been when the camera takes its eye off of Rust and Ginger and hits the helicopter overhead. Mm. Because there are, there are at least two or three notable cuts within the movie reference that we've been using, 1917, the one most notably being when he jumps over uh, the waterfall and you lose right. oh, that uh, is when. Okay. the sight with your character. Oh. Your character's gone. Okay. So that's the only thing that I can think of that could have possibly been involved in that scene unless they, and which I wouldn't put it past HBO because HBO, we know, shells out money upon money yeah. upon money upon money. And it could have been a real helicopter and the, the camera could have absolutely panned up to the helicopter just for a second. But oh, it, yeah. that felt like a cut to me okay. in the continuous scene. That's, that's about the only other thing. I, that's what I was look. I was looking for when I was rewatching it because I I did turn it back and I think I watched it about three times. Um, but yeah, coming back, I was like, "Ooh, let's see if I can spot it because you've just recently showed me this new kind of stuff since 1917, and and it's now I'm looking for it in movies and and in TV shows. Before I wasn't. I was just probably enjoying really great cinematography, and now I'm just like, "Ooh, oh, I, I can see it." So this has been fun. Yeah. It's a fun little bonus for me. All right. It's different. It's different when it comes to like that continuous shot style because you know the, your traditional movie or TV show is going to have uh, absolutely multiple cuts. They're, oh yeah. You're, you're even going to have multiple takes within one scene that you're watching mm -hmm. within a five minute span. Like for lack of a better expression or lack of a better example, um, if you look at like fucking Vanderpump Rules or something like that, even they have retakes on their scenes. Oh, yeah. You'll notice, like, a, a cup is in a different spot, but they're saying the same thing. Same you know who does really good with that? Discussion. Show you don't watch? Mad Men. Because they're smoking all the time. And so they're they're noticing how much their cigarettes go up and down. And a lot of... Or they'll start smoking, and then they'll put the cigarette down into an ashtray or put it down by their hand because yeah, that is the speaking of reality shows. That is the best way to see how much the editors are editing. Just look, they're, they're always out to dinner. So just look at their glasses and their food and see what they've touched or ordered yet. Yeah, Ugh. exactly. Behind the scenes stuff for you. All right. Okay. So let's move on. One of the other main themes of this show is that the crime is in many ways, satanic, ritualistic, um, a religion in some way, but what we know it as, as the viewer, is Carcosa. So what we kind of get laid out for us and the things that are totems or relevant within this religion that we see are the wooden icons that just look like they're twisted together into different triangles and different shapes. Um, the, they find a church in episode two, um, and there's a very creepy monster image on the church wall. 
And also in the finale, that labyrinth feel of it's not a cave. It's kind of like an underground structure, but it's not a cave, but it feels like a cave because the Yellow King, Errol, he kind of makes it into like a labyrinth. And they're going down that same place where these young women, children were sacrificed. So let's talk a little bit about Carcosa. You kind of looked it up a little bit more. We were trying to see if there was anything to it as a actually practiced religion, but you tell us what you found. So it's not necessarily practiced religion. It's not anything really of note in a big way. It all kind of stems from different portions of literature. And those portions of literature are kind of also stemming off of like the Lovecraftian types of stories mm-hmm. um we've got a ton of different like literal just references to it it's <coughs> excuse me um is actually a term found in many works of fiction such as uh things written by ambrose bierce or robert robert w chambers uh probably most notably associated with the name is chambers okay it, it usually donates a place or a city usually um, related to the king in yellow, which kind of connects us to the yellow king. Mm-hmm. So, Carcosa is actually a fictional city in Ambrose Bierce's short story. Um, it was a, an inhabitant of Carcosa. It was written in 1886. Mm. And it's based on an ancient and mysterious city that is barely described in the book only through someone that had seen it, but it's hindsight after the city had been destroyed. Hmm. So it's like in the realm of reality, Carcosa is better known as uh, Fort Macomb. This is what I think was the filming location for True Detective. It's in New Orleans and it was actually most notably known as Fort Wood and it was completed in 1822. Ah, okay. I was going to ask if, yeah, I was going to ask if any of this was like regional in America or in the South, because one of the things that I was reading was that it, uh, True Detective was originally set for Arkansas. So we would still be in the South, but we wouldn't have that. There's something about Louisiana that, I mean, you th- that's probably one of the first things you think of is like voodoo and it's haunted and the old French style of it and what religions were brought to Louisiana before any others. Yeah. Anything else interesting about Carcosa? There was something Um, you told me that I can't remember. I'm looking at my notes. Um, I mean, the, it was the, the place that they filmed it in was built as, a guard tower, essentially, for the uh, Chef Montour Pass in New Orleans. Okay. And then there's a, there's a great little, like, snippet from, it's called Cascadia's, or Casil, Casilda's song in The King in Yellow, Act 1, Scene 2. And it states, along the shore, the cloud waves break, the twin suns sink behind the lake, the shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange in the night where black stars rise, the strange moons circle through the skies. 
Mm. But Stranger Still lost Carcosa. Songs that the high, uh, the Hades shall sing, where flap and the tatters of the king must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die thou unsung as tears unshed shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. Mm. So it really kind of, it really kind of like, like that it. portion of, of it actually really ties into the show. We're talking about black stars. We're talking about mm-hmm. um, death. We're talking about um, uh, in in a circular way afterlife. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that they drew from that, and again, it just goes back to like the Lovecraftian crazy stories that were written back in the day, and it's just very interesting. Yeah, and not to say that it's specifically like a religion per se, as much as it is like. Uh, ritualification, you know, and like a return to like an older time or something. But it's interesting. Think about Rust and Marty in episode two, when they're at that tent revival church. And basically we know, we know how Rust feels about God and everything. And he's looking down. He's always looking down on people in religion and people who feel that they need something from a God or need to be validated or recognized or absolved. Like all of that just plays as weakness to him. And he, he hates it. And, you know, and then Marty says something to him, which I thought was just him like kind of gassing him up or whatever. He goes, Oh, when you talk about this, you sound panicked. And Then, but then there's something about Russ' character that really would work for a religion. Someone who is just so out of out of the box that he would kind of look at this religion and go, "Okay, I could see it. I can see how people would want to, you know, do that or need this or want this." But like, there's just the the overall like satanic evilness of it all is that the only victims in this are women and children. And the only people benefiting from this religion or whatever ritual are old perverted men (laughs) with a lot of money to hide all of this. So I just, I think it's interesting and how in the finale, um, Errol was calling him little priest and there's almost a, a Jesus resurrected complex to rust. Were you picking up on any of that? Yeah, we we had talked about like the God complex slash like him being a Jesus figure, God's son figure, mm-hmm. and it's it's really evident, particularly in that scene, and even even looking at there's a scene at the beginning of the season. I think it's in episode two. They're talking about um, is it necessary for evil or bad men to be out there? Or no, 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 Marty asks Rust, considers himself a bad man. Mm-hmm. And Rust is like, bad men are necessary to keep the worst men in the sidelines or in the background mm-hmm. or not have them there at all. Mm-hmm. So it automatically tells you that he considers himself to not be a good guy. Yeah. And to kind of land in this quote-unquote Carcosa setting is giving him, like, him that... It's giving the character the gravitas that that statement actually made was, you're bad, but you're keeping the 
worst of the evil mm-hmm. at bay. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's, I think in the finale when he's talking about there's light and there's dark, you know, and it, that doesn't mean that there's good religion or there's bad religion or there's bad men or there's good men. I think it's just kind of like how it affects your life and how these characters were living in the light and the dark in various parts of their lives. There were times when Rust was doing good, you know, when he, yeah, when he was, he, there was times when he was happy with his wife and his daughter. There were times when he was in another relationship and trying to move on after this case. And same with Marty, he's a good father and then he's a horrible father. He's a good husband and then he's the worst husband. And it's, I think using a religion that is, that is so like, evil or not evil which it is the truest evil because it's sacrificing children and it's just these are the worst men these are the scariest people this is the sickest thing it makes characters who are so you know fucked up like like rusty or rusty like rust and marty that it just kind of puts them in a separate place where we don't have to judge them too harshly you know they can exist as complicated fucked up people but look at these people, they're sacrificing women and children. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's absolutely terrible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it, to be honest. It's, it is, it's, it's one so of the dark. darker things. It's, I, it's one of the darker shows when it comes to certain things. I think the way that, like, and this is because Nick Pizzolatto is a different kind of writer, and maybe not a huge feminist or whatever, but there, I think one of the even creepier things than children being sacrificed was the juxtaposition of Marty's young girls um, versus, you know, sex worker after sex worker, after mistress, after lover, after whatever it's there. This show is as, as violent and as dark as it can be at sometimes it is also sexual in a way that isn't titillating it's almost kind of like dark and inappropriate you know it's like the dark parts of of sexuality with child molesters and priests and the errol and his half sister (laughs) you know like just doing doing it you know there's like so many weird dark sexual overtones in this and a lot of and unfortunately a lot of it is subject to women and children but it's effective it really i think if you're gonna try to aim for something that isn't just like two cops and they're different you know it's like this puts us in a level of prestige in this show where it's like i don't even know if we're seeing them as detectives trying to solve a crime this is like uh this is about philosophy and and religion and all these different things i think it's 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 just a huge a huge huge like benefit of this show and that and also the fact like one of the other things I wanted to talk about was there are moments in the show not often there are moments in the show where Russ's character will be looking out of the car or looking up at the sky and he it's almost like he goes into a psychedelic kind of trance or kind of like hallucination and it's because when he was undercover he, they were probably doing drugs that we wouldn't even know the names to because they're mixtures of different things. And those things fried his brain and he will have hallucinations and he sees things. And he even tells the detectives when he's being interviewed in 2012 that he sees things. 
but yeah. watching not only watching this this like landscape and structure of Louisiana of you know the starkness of them just driving through country and not seeing a house not seeing anything just water and yeah, yeah the emptiness of it and then the sky is turning all these different colors and he's the lights are slowing down and lengthening out like through the the windows of the car it puts you in it almost gives the show like a fantasy kind of feel where you're like oh is that possible like what is he going to do next time travel but then it pulls it back in and it's explained so that it's still having that like realness of the show like the gritty this is this is the reality that we live in this is almost pretty close to present time and that was just something i just wanted to add because i think that i like how it almost took it almost takes you out and makes it like a different kind of show and that like lost like all of a sudden there's people they could totally crash on an island this is so realistic and then there's a smoke monster and you're like well shit now we're in a different kind of show the reality just went out the window exactly like this is a world where this probably wouldn't exist because we know that there are no such thing as smoke monsters but yeah i really i love that and i thought that that worked so well with this kind of dark kind of religion in there. Yeah. Um, really well for that character. And for us, like, yes. Get a little bit of, it's almost getting backstory without getting backstory. Yeah. Like, you see him having his hallucinations and you know, without having to see a flashback that he's gone through some shit. Mm-hmm. And you can start to relate with that character even more than you were relating with him before. If you're like an, an existential existentialist or mm-hmm. you know like you're all you're into the astrology and all of that mm-hmm. all of that stuff it's like you you that's another way to just get in touch with the character yeah and just to see what to see what he's yeah to see what he's going through just adds a layer of like where you, you might look at a character like rust and be like dude what are you talking about <laughs> the way the poetry of his words and the the way that he thinks is just so out there almost all the time. Like that's just how his brain works at this point. So it does kind of go hand in hand that he would look out the car window and the sky's turning pink and it's, yeah. yeah. But I, I thought that was really, really well done. And that was just kind of like one of the scenes where I'm like, Oh, that's just so cool. Like, and I'm just like, that's just another cool layer. Yeah. All right. Oh yeah. Anything, let's talk, do you want to, I think we've covered Louisiana really well, (laughs) pretty extensively, because we won't stop babbling about it. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I don't think so. I think we've hit all of our... All of our points pretty well. All right. Well, we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to get a little bit into... Welcome back. We are talking about True Detective. And before we do our character study into Rust and Marty and speak a bunch about them, I just wanted to take a little bit to talk about the finale because you and I, I think, share the same opinions that finales are important and especially to a limited series. Um, I 
their basically their own series finale. And we have a lot of opinions about different finales. And how did this one sit with you, Evan? Um, I mean, it was good overall, minus the fact that, you know, you and I have, this is a finale that you and I seem to agree with Mm -hmm. in general. And we both felt like something was missing or something was omitted from the story or edited out Mm -hmm. for time's sake or something like that. But with Russ kind of, you know, talking to Marty about what he saw while they were in Carcosa and it just didn't, it didn't fit. There was something that was missing. There was. There was almost something like it was an alternate ending, but I've, I've been thinking about it and I rewatched it again, again last night. And one of the things that I think we have, that we bump up against on when we think of it as a finale is the fact that Marty is the same, but Rust has gone through something when he was, after he was stabbed and he was laying there and then he went into a coma and he was fighting for his life and spent many, many days, you know, unconscious in the hospital, he had some sort of experience and it's definitely changed who he is to us. And it's, even though he looks the same and he's speaking the same, he's a little rattled and something has occurred to him uh, in this, with this injury that I think is a little bit different than the way he carried himself the rest of the season. And that's all fine, but I think it's up to the writing. And I mean, the acting was great, but I think it's, it's particularly up to the writing that if the characters going to finish the arc and completely change their mind in in the very last episode, in the last 20 minutes of the episode, that just needs to be super believable. And maybe I I just think a little bit kind of got lost in the fact that we knew Rust as this character who has gone through changes, but he never really has changed through this whole spectrum of time that we've got from 95 to 2000, whatever, then to 2012. It, it just kind of was a reach for me. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, like I said, just, just the fact that something felt omitted, something felt like mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't done the way that it did, that it would have, it should have done the show justice. Yeah. Because this being the, best season of this show mm-hmm. should have had a better ending and with Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey being these phenomenal actors with a phenomenal story to, to go off of mm-hmm. it it just didn't feel complete yeah like it's I mean it's not lost finale it's not Dexter finale it's not like any of those where it's the real bad ones completely <laughs> falls flat mm-hmm. and ruins the fucking series or, um, or even, you know, sorry, HBO, Game of Thrones yeah. fell fucking flat, and it's not that. It's not that feeling. It was still a great finale. The characters still had held up, but it just felt incomplete. Like, that's, that's the main word that comes to my mind, is incomplete. Yeah, it does. Like there should have been a... Give us a, an hour and a half. You you threw us hour and a half episodes of again for lack of a better reference, Game of Thrones. Um, but 
you were building something with this first season of the series, and it should have been complete a little bit, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I was, and I wanted to start with what you thought of it. And I was interested because we realized that this is your first or second rewatch. And, and I, every time I watched the finale, I thought maybe it might be a little different coming around on this fifth or sixth time. Um, but it, it still did kind of, and this isn't, I don't feel like I'm coming at it, like you said, with the same criticism that we come at other finales that haven't ended so well. Um, it almost would have worked if it was like a, a Damon Lindelof, like completely ambiguous, like how Watchmen ended. It might, that might've served it, but I mean, that is just the only thing that I can think of to criticize about this show. And it just so happens that it falls in the finale. Uh, let's talk about some things that really did work with the finale. I think that the buildup leading to Errol and the house in, and the, all the property that they're living on his half sister, and all of his crazy voices, like the, that, uh, it was just so effective for framing the monster. Well, I, mean, I had to text you and be like, so wait, am I insane? It sounds like he's now talking with a British accent, and then it, talk, it sounded like he was talking with an Irish accent. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I texted you, I'm like, is this purposeful, or have I just had too much wine? Oh, he's and a trip. I was just like, what the fuck? Yeah, you can tell there, I mean, just straight away. And we saw him, we saw this character, and these are a couple of my favorite moments, is there's a place where he's he's driving a lawnmower around a school, and Rust goes up to him. And then he's stopped by even kind of picking up that he might be the guy that they're looking for, because Marty calls him back into the car and says, we have to go. And then the two uh, detectives who are interviewing them the whole time run into him in the, in the second to, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then he's just on there going like, Oh, I know all about these coastlines and my family's from here. And they're like, yeah, okay, enough. And then they drive and then they drive off. And now we finally see him. And in just in that opening, which I feel like we only spent maybe five minutes with him in the beginning with his, his father's dead body in one of the houses on the property. And he's like throwing things yeah. at the dog and changing voices. And he's living with this woman. And it's just, it, it was, it's very cringy and it's very effectful. Like I'm switching positions in my chair right now because he makes me uncomfortable. Well, it's like, it, what better of a, of a villain? Like, so we, we saw him in, of what was it, episode two? Or three. Yeah. Well, that was the first time we saw him riding the lawnmower. Mm-hmm. And he had an overgrown, he had a bit of a beard, so you couldn't see the scars on his face. Mm-hmm. Which is what, you know, led them down that track. And, you know, the, the second time we saw him, when the two detectives that were interviewing Marty and Rust saw him, we finally got that look. And you had, in, in reading your notes, I had subsequently figured out that okay we have seen the killer mm-hmm. and I read the notes on that episode where Rust is talking to him and you had made a note that said um, we've seen the killer they've seen the killer and from my not having finished the season in the first place the first time I watched it mm-hmm. I was like ooh spoiler alert but 
whatever, because now I have like a, I have some idea for the next time that we see him. Yeah, which was awesome. It's really good and, placement, like that, and you don't often yeah. do that, and it's kind of hard to do in TV depending on the actor that you choose. Because if you throw somebody in a show who's really recognizable and they don't pay attention to them for a while, you're just like, no, who's that? Like, he's top build. <laughs> like, what are you, who's that guy? But this guy, is he's a great actor and he's in a bunch of stuff. But he still just kind of has this own, like, the way that they put the, the burns on his face, the way that they dressed him. He's a very big man. He's just a very powerful, scary and and then the thing is, is that are these people, so is it like home in X-Files where these people are like inbred and they've only ever known like the, the property that they've lived in, in this town, in this like small town, or is he some sort of weird genius who just picks up on people's accents and can change his thinking? Or is he like, what's his face in the, sorry, <laughs> I can't remember the reference to that movie, Split, sorry. Like channeling other personalities. Yeah, like he's just like switching through them. It's effective. I'd almost, I'd almost lean towards that. That he's more like James McAvoy in Split, where he's kind of channeling other personalities. Because he's, you know, especially in the finale, he's talking about ascending and becoming something different. And it seems like that's happened to his personality in, in multiple ways before. Mm hmm which would give him those other dialects, those other ways of speaking. And other and other characters, maybe, yeah, that he's speaking to, like, different people so that he can pull off what he's doing. Because if somebody comes up and asks you, like, hey, who was this guy? Or have you ever seen this man? They're like, yeah, he has an accent. And then the next person they talk to, they go, no, that's not the guy. He was acting differently. It's manipulating his personality to be effective in his murders. And then when he announces that um, he looks out the kitchen window and he says, it's been a, it's been a while since I've left my mark on this world. He just has that like culty kind of like, I'm an artist killer kind of deal going on. Yeah. Like a Charles Manson or mm -hmm. Sam where it's like, you know, they have a specific way of people. Yeah, yeah, and like, they think that they're doing it for a reason, and that's what makes psychosis such a a scary trope for, like, a, a villain, is that it's just like, well, how do you reason with this person? You'd never be able to because they're not yeah, rational. You don't. Yeah. yeah. Also, the... I really was expecting that one of them was going to die, or both of them were going to die because I felt like in those last two episodes, we meet them again in their... In, later on in life and they both don't have the things that they had before. And especially Marty, you know, he hasn't seen his wife or girls in two years and he's been distanced you know, distancing himself from them and living a very solitary life, kind of like the way that Russ always lived. And it's almost like the both of them reopening this are just going like, well, if it, it's kind, it, it's just the stakes are like out of control. I did really think going into that, and especially because it's a limited series, I was like, "Oh no, both these guys are in danger." Well, I, was it was it touted as a limited series in the beginning? Yeah. Okay, so I didn't read. I didn't remember it being touted as a limited series. I thought it was going to be like because it, it also felt like with the finale, 
with it kind of you know, us feeling like there was that blank there mm-hmm. that they could have they could have done a second season, but would it have been as effective as the first? Yeah, and I feel like they really tied up every, especially for a finale. They really tied up all the loose ends. So it's not like when you're like when I was watching season three of Ozark fully aware that there's probably a season four, but even in the beginning, I was like, Oh, okay. This, this couldn't possibly be a final season because this is open. This is open. And then you watch this and you're like, they backtrack over everything that they missed and they go through everything again. So, and they're both not cops at that point anymore. Marty's a private investigator and Rust has quit. So it does feel a little bit more final than most limited series give you. I really did like the aspect of of Marty and Rust still like not being cops anymore. Yeah, uh, particularly you know, and just you mentioned the finale, also the penultimate, like, and that those were two of my favorite episodes overall Mm -hmm. because it was like we're now just dealing with people with these lack of a better expression, sorry, Liam Neeson, specific set of skills. They both pull it off yes. so incredibly well. And you you kind of humanize they it humanized the two characters. Like they, they weren't you're not looking at them as detectives, you're not looking at them as cops, you're looking at them as people viewing this this uh, case that they went through mm-hmm. from an outside perspective as opposed to being the investigators. Yes. And it's like they have a They're debt. investigators, obviously, but it's, it, it had a different feel to it, and it was a much more kind of relatable, um, tangible feel to they it. Work, kind of wish that they work better. Yeah, they they like with that time in between them since they hadn't seen each other in 10 years and now they're not cops. So they're kind of doing their own thing. It shows you that they, they can be good partners and they work really well together. They were just confined by the parameters of the law and their superiors and, you know, trying to get promotions and trying to rise up and rank. You can't do the things that they did, you know, when they're rehashing it, but you're right. It is, it is much more like an examination of like a choice that, they're making as men, not as men who are yeah. detectives who wear a badge and this is their job. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, let's take a minute. We won't go on too long because one of our golden rules is we try not to talk about things that we don't like. But let's just talk about season two really fast. <laughs> let's crack okay. it open. You're going to be on your own. You're going to be on on your own on this one. I have nothing but bad things to say about season two, so... So I tried. So I, I, after I finished the notes and the rewatch and I was waiting for you to catch up, I was, I was like, I'm just going to go straight into season two and I'm going to ride this wave. Um, I remember watching this, being super excited for it, even though devastated that it wasn't McConaughey and Woody Harrelson again, like in a anthology way that American Horror Story can recycle actors or whatever. But I love those actors. I love Vince Vaughn. I love Colin Farrell. I think Rachel McAdams is is great. And I don't watch rom-coms, so I was excited to see her in more. Um, I love Taylor Kitsch. And it and I and it was all mm, there was a tone there. Sorry, what? 
you really loved Hannah Kenny. You need to watch Friday Night Lights and The Normal Heart, and then we can talk about if Taylor Kitsch can act or not. Okay, well, I'm gonna uh, for the time being, I'm voting for the Your thumbs down. Act and every everything he's in is just ruined by him being there. Oh. <laughs> we'll discuss my hatred for him. Later. Okay. I'm sorry, we can't agree on that. I do have a soft spot for him as a Friday Night Lights fan. I think that's why he's just like, he's in my heart. He struggles in this role. He really does. And it's disappointing. And the same way that Rachel McAdams struggles in her role, because these roles don't feel authentic. They feel like beat poet, weirdo, ex-cops. Like it's, there's a lot going on. But specifically, let's just narrow it. What's your biggest problem? Why didn't season two work for you? It just didn't. It, it didn't work at all, to be honest. Like I was just like you. I was super stoked. Like, okay, cool. True Detective season two is coming back. At that time, I had blindly told myself that I had finished watching the first season, mm-hmm. and I was super excited about the second. Come to find out, you know, on the rewatch that I had had not finished the first season and never saw the end mm-hmm. but you know a different setting a different place a different style was very interesting to me and I really do like the main three actors uh, Farrell Vaughn and McAdams and McAdams has done not many because like you said she is very rom-com-y mm-hmm. but um there's a movie called Red Eye. Oh, that is good. You're right. Her and, and Cillian Murphy, and it's it's really good. And it's a very suspenseful thriller. Mm-hmm. And she did great. He did great. Um, so it was exciting to see her like kind of in this like gritty cop drama. And it was you know it wasn't period. It was set in the there then and now, mm-hmm. which now I guess would be maybe concerned considered period but there's no um, time lapse in season two and that could also be something that might have been missing yeah because if you look at season one and three that was one of the best things about it is Mm -hmm. you're we're re-examining yeah we're not just viewing it for the first time Mm -hmm. we're watching it from different characters perspectives from the very beginning which is years prior to the tail end of it, and we're seeing that at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think that's so much more interesting. It is. When we're kind of bouncing back and forth, back and forth. And I think you and I had talked about this before, and uh, we, we've talked about hooks, like how we're not able to get into shows, or we are able to get into shows. And for me, I need a hook. Yeah. And with True Detective... That was the hook, was, okay, so we're re-examining something. They're going to show us the whole process that was gone through in the first place, where these characters were, to where the characters end up in what we're watching in, like, the flash-forwards or the flashbacks. And and maybe that comes from our love of loss. I was just going to say that! got attached to flash-forwards and flashbacks. Mm Mm-hmm. You learn a lot. And... I think after Lost, there was a time when flashbacks were being were being kind of panned by critics saying it's lazy writing. So this is kind of them taking that and saying, okay, this isn't flashbacks. This is 
re, like reinvestigating something. We're getting back into it. So God, that was so long ago. Now we got to go all the way back. It's like a sweet, like cheat code almost to, you know, say like, this isn't a flashback. You're also gaining, you're also gaining knowledge mm-hmm. from both the flash, the, the, the past story and the current story. And you're gaining like the idea of where these people were coming from when totally. they were investigating and this and that. It, it gives the story more of an, of a full arc mm-hmm. in my opinion. It does. And I think, yeah, that is definitely what is was kind of getting away from them in this season is it was just too many characters, too many ideas, too many things that everybody was kind of trying to keep track of. And I think a lot more unlikable characters that just made the whole, like, even if they weren't, like, main characters or if they were, you know, sub-characters or whatever, that's, even if I don't have to see them a lot, those characters were so disgusting or annoying in some way that I was just like, ugh, you're distracting me from what we're here for, which is a story about like two or in this case, four characters. So it's overcast and it's just, yeah, it just loses the thread. And I think like, what am I, I can't think of the word I'm trying to get to, but everybody you pretty much ask has this relationship to season two. And it kind of looms over like a dark shadow when you talk to people about True Detective and they're like, have you seen True Detective? And I've been asking everybody and they're like, which season? And I'm like, one. And they're like, okay, fine. I'll talk about one. And I was like, God, (laughs) people are really edgy about two. I'm open to discuss that, but (laughs) you bring up season two, I'm going to tell you to go fuck yourself. Yeah. Strong feelings from Evan. All right. Well, (laughs) let's move on before we get mad okay so we're gonna come back with our character study and i'm just gonna take a quick little break here we'll be right back all right welcome back (laughs) right as i came back banjo just snorted (laughs) there's a dog in this room if you hear any sounds He literally just went. (laughs) All right. He's going to be quiet while we talk about a little bit of character study on Rust and Marty. And I'm going to kind of lead you through this, Evan, because I've been thinking about these characters for a long time. I've been rewatching the show and loving the show. And I just want to kind of get into why these characters work so well and what makes them so unique because I think, I mean, I'm putting them up there with like Walter White and Don Draper. These are really fundamental male characters. And just kind of in that way of television, when we were approaching the anti-hero, the man who has to make choices for good, and then, you know, choices that others see as illegal or evil, I'm thinking of Breaking Bad, and kind of the secrets and the internal lives that men kind of carry around within themselves and especially in a job like a detective. So let me kick this off. So let's talk about rest by the brilliant, brilliant Matthew McConaughey. All right. So some things about rest that kind of make him really interesting is that he is the kind of exact antithesis of what you would think of for a cop a man who feels like just what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. 
And, but with Russ, there's so much more thinking about things because he's so philosophical. He's like a nihilist, pessimist. He has an idea of the world and he's definitely not quiet about sharing it. And that's kind of what makes him the dark horse of the police force. And I think it's really cool that he kind of pairs up with somebody who's like Marty because Marty is a regular dude with a big ass dick. That is exactly, that is not just one of the funniest lines from this show, regular kind of dude with a big ass dick, but it really describes who Marty is and how different he is from Rust. Because Marty is the kind of guy who everybody gets along with. He does his job and he he's liked. He's not a bully or too threatening. And he just does his fucking job. But his big ass dick gets him in trouble. And not quite in a way where people have a problem with Rust, but definitely Marty is coming in after a long night of drinking and cheating on his wife and never going home and coming back the next day unshowered. So how do you feel about these two characters, how they work together? And then we'll kind of separate them into the ways that they're different. I, I really like the juxtaposition of Marty being kind of like a grounded every man's man and then Russ being like a very much an existentialist at least and that's what that's what I gathered from them mm-hmm. um, and it, it kind of makes the relationship between the two of them work because you can see it from two different sides a balance so watching it with two very very different uh, from two different aspects but being able to understand the way that they work together, I mean, Marty has some some moments, you know, when Russ is, comes over and um, mows the lawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marty Marty does become very territorial. You can tell because mm-hmm. he he views quote unquote mowing the lawn pretty much as screwing his wife. Oh, totally. Uh, but also makes him a massive hypocrite because he's out there every, you know, 20-something-year-old that he can get his hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, they're, they're complete characters, and that's the best thing about these two in the first place. They're complete characters. They're flushed-out characters. And yeah. it doesn't even have, we didn't even have to spend, like, a single episode on each character because it's just so evenly that's done true, throughout yeah. the whole season that you understand, like, okay, this is who Marty is, this is who Rust is, and this is where... If it had been two Martys, it wouldn't have been interesting. Mm-mm. If it had been two Russs, it wouldn't have been interesting because you'd just be listening to the same recycled dialogue the whole fucking time. Yeah. But you get two different personalities that work on two different wavelengths, and it just it just worked out super fucking well. Super well. I think also it's Rust is somebody who just says, like, I have issues. I was an alcoholic. I did time undercover that put me in a psych hospital and I'm here because it's the last place that would take me after everything he's experienced in his career undercover. And Marty is just the guy who's just been doing whatever they need, you know, whatever is asked of him basically. And I think in the beginning 
what what kind of sets Marty like it, he kind of makes him a good anchor for Rust because at first when you get that character like we were talking about how the the first few episodes are very different from the end we're getting a lot of Rust and just him and just his ideas and his monologues and his thinking and Marty is kind of just saying the whole time those whole first two episodes like you know what like don't worry about it. Like, just don't say it out loud. Stop thinking that and just try to act normal. And it's not until we get a little bit further into the crime, into the crime and everything unfolding and the, the leads that Rust is catching, especially going undercover with that motorcycle gang is where Rust kind of gains the respect from Marty. And then uh, quickly that respect and that partnership that they have kind of dissipates because they're being told to not investigate too much. Don't go rooting around with the people who run things around here. And then Marty cheating, getting caught, separating, cheating again, and then getting caught again. That's where we put Marty's wife into this. And she is just the monkey wrench that completely breaks their relationship. Because Marty is disgusting in what he's doing, but she does. She completely knows what she's doing, and that she thinks it's I'll do this because the person that I could sleep with and have an affair with to get back at him and do what he's doing. The one person that would really fuck him up is definitely Rust, but I don't think she realizes that that will just completely break their partnership apart. And, you know, they have a fight in the parking lot and then they just kind of go off and they don't see each other again for 10 years. So I think that where we get their relationship is two cops. And this is always played out in TV is like, I'm this cop and I'm the other one. And this person's like this and I'm like this. And with this, it's like, we can see that it can work that the way that these two guys can work together can crack open something as big as all of these murders and how far back it goes. And we see the relationship just bend and break and them coming back together. And I think that's like probably why the ending works so well. And those last few episodes work so well because they're truly seeing each other for the first time and getting to know each other for the first time as well. He, like, Marty will say, like, you've never asked me about myself at all. And Rust is just like, so, while we're sorting out these papers, how are you doing? So, I think why these characters work so well is just because of what we see them go through. And I kind of like, and I think, like, one of my favorite parts is in the finale and stuff is that they're just there. They have each other's back. And they follow each other into these things. And I don't think it's because... They have, you know, nothing left to lose. So why not get the ultimate bad guy? But I think it's really speaking to characters like, I know you don't watch Mad Men, but we can throw Walter White into this. But characters like Don Draper who find themselves in positions of power, be it a, be his, you know, him being successful at an ad agency and being a, you know, a member of society who's a successful man. And then these two characters, not just being men, but being detectives and working for the law to protect people and protect their community. It's really just shows the struggle that you go through when it comes to what is it to be a man in life 
And then what is it to be a detective? And how do I split this job? And what we find in television, I don't know, we don't know what it's quite like for real detectives out in the world, but in television, we always see that they'll just always be struggling with life and job and who am I? And I can't separate my identity from being a detective and I don't know myself as a man. Yeah. Do I, does that sound crazy? <laughs> like I've been talking for a minute. Yeah. It's, well, it's a lot of your, like you said, it's a lot of philosophical, like introspective kind of stuff about just thinking like, who, who are we? Who's worse? I don't think that Rust is worse than Marty because they're both know themselves and they know how they fail. Rust is an alcoholic, can't keep a relationship. Marty is a womanizer who blows up in his entire family. And I think the saddest part for these characters where you kind of, you're disappointed, but feel for them at the same time is seeing Rust like living alone in his apartment, you know, his view of the world. And he's just, it seems sad. It seems depressing and isolative. And then to see Marty who has it all and then throws it away because he just doesn't know what to fucking do with himself. And he just can't control himself. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. It, it, it almost gives you a good look at the, you know, the way different people live. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, I have everything so I can throw it away. I have nothing so I can't throw anything away. I have mm -hmm. nothing, so I have nothing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> I have everything, and I have a lot to lose. And it's just, it, it examines the way that people kind of take account of what's good in their lives or what's not good, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense or not, but... No, it is, uh, and it's... Yeah. It's also about outside of their job, you know, we get to see like choices that they've made in their lives. And I think one of the things that I always thought was interesting was how Marty's daughters, you'll see scenes with his daughters and see scenes of him being a father, or even if he's, you know, just caught his daughter doing something that he doesn't approve of, or, you know, they're just like, daddy, are you going to have dinner with us? he's in these scenes where what is it to be a man is to be a good father to protect young women. And then two scenes forward or two scenes back, we're seeing women stripping or women as, you know, sex workers and then women as corpses and murder victims and the less dead and all of that. And I just always, I think a lot of that lies of like, what is it to be a man to protect the, you know, to not just protect his community, but to fail to protect the children who were getting sacrificed and then to fail to protect his daughters. And that's Marty's big like light bulb moment is when he admits to the two detectives that are interviewing them that he did fail as a father because he was being inattentive that all through it, he could have made it right. He could have fixed it, but he was not paying attention. He had that detective's mindset where he just wasn't paying attention to what was directly under his nose. And that was that yeah. his family needed him, you know? And I just, I think that's a, that's one of my favorite parts of his story arc is that he realized that. And then in the later episodes, we see that that is the life you get, you know, alone, eating frozen dinners, struggling with online dating, you know, after being a man with his house and his wife and his daughters and stuff, it's just like, if you take certain paths in life, this is where you get to. 
Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Rust is a little bit more out there because he kind of, he kind of uh, just does his own thing. Like his apartment, I think like those are some of like the best ways to kind of see into that character is him and his apartment with like that little mirror that you can only see your eye through. <laughs> when he's has all he take he literally takes the job home with him when he has all the, t the antlers and the little wooden icons on the table and he's passing the flashlight through it to see if it makes a shadow on the wall. Like he's just looking at this, he's taking it home and he's looking at it and he's completely, you know, delved into it where Marty gets off work and then goes, I can't take this home with me. I can't keep looking at these things. What can I do? I can get really drunk and cheat on my wife and not go home. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So anything else that we wanted to say about these two characters besides how great they are? I mean, I just want to, look, I just want to reiterate the fact that we got a chance to spend a good eight hours with two phenomenal actors, yes. two phenomenal roles. Yes. And we are privileged just to have had that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I think you you covered everything. You, this was your this was definitely your department, and this was definitely your shining spot. Where Thank you're you. <laughs> examining these characters. Yeah, I've loved and these I've loved these characters for a really long time, and I they definitely stand up there with the Don Drapers and the Walter Whites. And I even if it's just for a one limited season, I think how impactful this show was. And it also was a like one of those things that I think maybe I said the wrong thing earlier when we were recording and I said golden age of television. Maybe what I meant was like re renaissance or like a, you know, redoing television and in, in, especially in 2014, anywhere from 2012 to 2016, we were just, I mean, that was just really such an amazing time. And not only were we getting great shows coming out, but they were being executive produced and looked over by really great showrunners and really great actors. And I think that without that executive producer credit on these scenes, we might not have gotten those, you know, those like the way that they acted those characters and that performance. And it just kind of changed things for TV where it's like, everybody's going to be on board. The actors are going to spend time getting into this character, spend time with the writing and this isn't just going to be like hey everybody here's game of thrones here's a script it's just like the book go you know this is like what do we want to say and i just feel like this is just such an example of how tapped in showrunners and actors and writers were at this time it's just like ooh, mwah, chef's kiss amazing prestige level great great television yeah absolutely going down in history Great, great fucking series. And we love it. Yeah. 
And so we got a little time before we go. Um, if you guys are listening to this in order, uh, the next few weeks, actually the whole summer, Evan and I are going to be making weekly episodes of different episodes of the X-Files. Yay! Insert, insert X-Files music. We'll do it for you. We'll be the music. But we're really excited about this. We're, we are not experts on X-Files, but we're really big fans. And we love rewatching it. So we decided to pick some of our favorite episodes. And we're going to watch them over and over. Talk about the things that we love about them. And we're going to, I feel like we're going to become X-Files experts by the end of the summer. Probably. We're going to, yeah, we're going to put our feelers out there and, you know, really see what made these great. Try to find some stuff about how the show was filmed. And it's just, there's so much to go into that we've especially found that there's a lot to cover. But we're really excited about that. And since we're quarantined for summer, we're going to find aliens we decided yeah we are all right so stay tuned for that in the coming weeks yeah or well i feel like i have seen a ufo in portland so i'll save that story (laughs) we will talk about our close encounters and seeing ufos all right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us and listening to our thoughts about True Detective. And we will talk to you guys soon. Love you. Bye. Bye.